First Timothy chapter one, verse eight. This is what the word of God has to say. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. For a long time now, in our own culture, there has been a concerted effort to tear down society's stabilizing institutions and any form of authority by those who are attempting to transform our society in some very negative ways. These attacks have generally been focused on the family structure, on government, law enforcement, educators, the church, and, and many, and many other things. And the most common line of attack has been to find an example of abuse or failure in these things and then use that example of abuse or failure uh, to create distrust in the entire institution or in the entire use of that particular form of authority. Every profession has those who are incompetent, malevolent, and abusive. A, a biblical worldview recognizes the sin of the individual while at the same time maintaining the goodness of the institution or its particular position. So let me give some examples to help you understand what I mean by this. A couple of examples. Number one, God created the institution of marriage to be a blessing for both husband and wife and to be the nucleus of the family. The family is God's good gift intended for the blessing and for the raising of children. Christians recognize and affirm the goodness of marriage and the order of authority within the family, and we recognize and affirm the blessing that comes from properly ordered families. Christians also recognize that there are such things as uh, abusive, um, there are husbands who abuse their wives. Christians recognize that there are, 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 are wives who, um, who uh, neglect their mothers, who neglect their children. There are parents who abuse their children. And yet even still, Christians affirm marriage and family are good when used lawfully. Another example. God gave the authority of law enforcement to the state to hold back anarchy and lawlessness. Christians recognize that, that the enforcement of laws is good. Christians also recognize that there are wicked laws and that there are wicked uh, persons who, uh, law enforcement officials who use their authority for wicked and, and, and abusive purposes. Even still, 
Christians affirm laws and law enforcement as good when used lawfully. Now, this principle applies to almost every area of our life. So, without going into all the details, just here's some, some others. There are bad parents, but parenting is good when done lawfully. There are bad politicians, but law, lawmaking is good when done lawfully. There are bad policemen, but law enforcement is good when done lawfully. There are bad teachers. But education is good when done lawfully. There are bad doctors. But medicine is good when done lawfully. There are bad judges. But, but the judicial system is good when done lawfully. There are bad pastors and elders. But elder leadership is good when done lawfully. There are bad deacons. But serving the church is good when done lawfully. There are bad churches. But the church is good when done lawfully. Now, we need to appreciate that when you have experienced unlawful use of good things, one reaction is to reject the whole thing, to tear down rather than repair. And friends, that's what we are experiencing in our culture today, this impulse to tear down rather than to repair. And oftentimes it's rooted in a real experience of something that was intended for good, used for unlawfully, and it was thus experienced destructively. In this passage today, Paul makes a bold, declarative, unmitigated statement. The law is good. And then he gives a conditional word if it is used lawfully. He was responding to the false teachers who were perverting the law of God. They were using the law unlawfully and thus they were using it destructively. Paul does not reject the law. He doesn't say we need to tear it down, reject it, or ignore it, move beyond it. He doesn't do any of those things. He, he doesn't reject the law, but he affirms it as good then, when lawfully used for the purpose and for the glory of God. So this morning, I want us to consider these things when we think about the law and what it produces in our life. Number one, the goodness of the law. I, as I was preparing for you this week, I desperately wanted a better title than the law is good. It seemed so simple and not snazzy enough, and yet I just kept coming back to that's the statement of Scripture. That's what I wanted to make the statement today. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear that. The law is good. So I want to begin with the goodness of the law. Number two, I want us to understand the purpose of the law. And then lastly this morning, I want us to consider the glory of the gospel. And that makes sense when you understand the goodness and the purpose leads to the glory of the gospel of God. Let's begin with the goodness of the law. Verse 8, I want to read that again just so that we ground this point in the passage. Now we know. In other words, this is not up for debate. Now we know that the law is good. Friends, there's some fundamental things that we need to understand here. And the first is, is that everything of God is good. Everything of God is good. God is good. In, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, 
Jesus is recorded as saying, why do you call me good? Somebody called him or referenced him as good teacher. So why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Matthew records the same thing by saying, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. And of course, that is the Lord God. God is good. Therefore, everything that God does is good. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, so we'll get to this later, Timothy, Paul writes, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected that is received with thanksgiving. So some of the law, uh, those who are manipulating the law in chapter 4, we'll deal with this later, were, were trying to say that some of the things that God had, had created for our good and our blessing were bad. And, and th there again, Paul rejects that God is good. Everything he makes and does is good. God is good, everything God does is good, everything of God has purpose, and everything of God is a blessing for his people. Psalm 73 says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, understanding this fundamental truth determines how you understand everything else. God is good, therefore his law is good. God is good, therefore his plans and purposes are good. God is good, therefore his mercy and his judgment is good. The goodness of God's law, listen carefully, the goodness of God's law does not come from the judgment of man. The goodness of God's law does not come from the experience of man. So when, when Paul declares in verse 8, for we know God, the law is good. And when I declare to you this morning this very simple thing, the law is good, God is good, everything God does is good, everything that flows from God is good, I'm not saying that from the perspective of the judgment of man has said we've, we've weighed God and found him to be good or that our, we have experienced God and found him to be good. That is a wrong place to start. God of all creation is not judged and is not subject to the opinion and the will or the judgment of man. God is not good nor declared good because you or I or any other man has judged God as good. No, friends, the goodness of God's law comes from the nature of God himself. He declares of himself, he is good. He declares of his law, the law is good. God is good. His law testifies to his goodness. Therefore, everything that God does and says and wills and purposes is good. Now, I, I want to say to you, friends, if that's not where you begin, then nothing else from this passage makes sense. If you begin with, I will declare and I will determine whether or not God is good, then you cannot understand the purpose of the law, the goodness of the law, or even the glory of the gospel. You must start with the fundamental, foundational truth that God is good. Everything that flows from God is good. Your experience, your perspective, your, 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 your understanding of things may be skewed. You may be saying, it's hard for me to understand how it is good, but you must start with the theological foundation that God is good and everything that flows from him is good. Now, what was happening in the church was that false teachers were perverting what is good. 
The law is good. And then there's this big two-letter word, if it is used lawfully. The absolute statement of the goodness of the law is conditional on the lawful use of the law. Now, Paul defined his and Timothy's charge in verse 5. So, the structure of this passage, you really have verse 5. Then there's this parenthetical insertion of those who had strayed away from the calling of Paul and Timothy. And that parenthetical insertion goes all the way down through verse 10. Then you have verse 11, which is sort of the ending of verse 5. It gets a little confusing, but that's why I'm saying that really this passage goes from 5 to 11. But the absolute statement of the goodness of the law is conditional on the lawful use of the law. So Paul defined his and Timothy's charge in verse 5 as love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. When the law is understood from the perspective of this charge, it is indeed good. But when it is manipulated and perverted by false teaching, it can become corrupted. Now, I take you back to the, to the introduction. That's true of any good thing. Any good thing, when it is perverted, when it is corrupted, what was intended for good then can be used for destruction and wickedness. Good things can be corrupted and will be corrupted by sin. The exalt, I don't have an exhaustive list, but here's just some big ones. Marriage is good. One of the saddest things about the the modern culture today is that marriage is no longer seen as something worthy of uh, chasing after, pursuing, because it's no longer recognized as good. Part of that is this generation coming up has seen a whole lot of dysfunction and and abuse in the context of marriage. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, we need to declare marriage is good when used lawfully, and yet at the same time we understand when it's perverted with sin and corrupted by sin, it can become destructive. Sex, our culture is overly, pervertedly fascinated with sex today. We need to declare as a church, sex was given by God, created by God, therefore it is good, declared by God. It is a blessing to us, and yet when it is perverted and corrupted by sin, what was intended for good and blessing becomes destructive and harmful. Possessions, words and language, government and law, authority, parents and family, even the church, all of these things, when they're perverted and corrupted by sin, can become destructive. Things intended for good purposes can be corrupted and used for evil. Art, beauty. If you think about art and beauty and the creative arts today, most of you will assume that has nothing to do with the church because it's been, it's been overtaken by those who are in rebellion before God. But dear friends, who creates beautiful things? The King of kings and the Lord of the lords and the creator of all good things. Beauty, the very word, the, the, when you say something is beautiful, what you're trying to say, it's good, it's pleasing What did God say about his creation after everything he created? He said, it is good, beautiful, and pleasing. Good things can be corrupted when corrupted by sin. Uh, uh, Things intended for good purposes can be corrupted when used for evil. So art intended for our our blessing can be be, uh, 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 corrupted and used for evil. Music, oh, 
The same expression that we can use to worship can also be used to, to express the most foul, perverted things. Intended for good purposes can be corrupted and used for evil. Art, music, books, social media, education. Things intended to bless can be used for harm. The law, as we will see when we talk about its purpose, is intended to be a blessing to you and me. And yet when it's corrupted by sin and perversion, it can then be used to harm. When false teachers pervert and corrupt what is good, neither the church nor individual believers can surrender any ground. Now, I, 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 I want to push this just briefly. I think what Paul is doing in verse 8 is pushing back against those who wanted to co-op what was good intended by God and used for, by false teachers, I think he wants to push back on giving up on that. So this is what I mean. When, when the church, when individual believers see good things corrupted by sin and abuse, we, we cannot um, uh, surrender any ground. We must declare the good things of God to be good. Even when the world, even because of experience or other things that have caused them to judge them as bad, we must say over and over again, no, when used lawfully, it is good. You must be grounded in sincere faith and sound doctrine so that you can defend against false teaching and the destruction that they bring. Listen, brothers and sisters, you need to be declaring to a lost world, marriage is given by God for our blessing, it is good. Sex is given by God for our blessing, and it is good. The church is given by God for our blessing, and it is good. The law is given by God for our blessing, and it is good. All these things are good when used lawful. The goodness of the law, verse 8. But secondly, I want you to see the purpose of the law. So we see that in verses 9 through 10. I want to read that to you again. So Paul says, understanding this. So he makes this declarative word that the law is good when used lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Three things here about the purpose of the law. First of all, it testifies to the holiness of God. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 9 explains the purpose of the law. It's interesting. He says the law is not for the righteous or the just. The law is for the lawless and the disobedient. The law was first given by, uh, to the Israelites when they left Egypt and we're being led by God to the promised land. We, we find that in, in, in chapters 19 through 34 of Genesis. You may remember this story. If not, let me tell you. So God had led the people out of Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. And, and God said to Moses, who he had uh, given the authority to lead the people, that he wanted Moses to come and meet him on Mount Sinai. It was up on the mountain that God met with Moses and gave him the law. 
If you've ever heard the phrase Ten Commandments, that's where this comes from. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other laws about, um, uh, about temple worship and about how we relate to one another and how we were to relate uh, uh, to God. But one of the interesting things about that testimony in Scripture is when Moses went up on the mountain, there were some very particular guidelines, that, not guidelines, rules that God set about how close the people were to even come to the edge of the mountain. And those rules were to make sure that they didn't even accidentally touch the edge of the mountain because the reason for that was unholy people cannot stand and live in the presence of a holy God. Now, that was the very first of that testimony of that separation. But as God gave the law to the people, that would be, that would be memorialized and institutionalized in the testimony of uh, the, the, the temple worship that the people could never enter into. In fact, they were progressively limiting um, rooms within the tabernacle and later into the temple that most uh, of, the, uh, of the Hebrews would never see because only a very select few of the, of the priests ever went into the most holy, selective places uh, where God dwelt because unholy people, unholy people cannot stand and live in the presence of a holy God. Now, why all of that, those rules and why all of that elaborate separation? Because God was teaching. God was teaching this, that, that unholy people cannot be in the presence of a living God, of the holy God. In your sinfulness, you are tempted to see the law as nothing more than limitations and restrictions. Maybe in your youth, you said, the law is just nothing more than thou shalt not. But friends, what it really is, is a testimony to the holiness of God. And as it testifies to the holiness of God, it also testifies that God is holy and you are not. The purpose of the law, first and foremost, is to declare God is holy. But as it declares the holiness of God, the second thing it does is it condemns sin. <laughs> now, if there was any unpleasantry about the law, here we are. It's the condemnation of sin. But friends, listen to me. This is of tremendous importance. Listen carefully to this. The two most important questions you should ask when responding to reading verse 9 are these. Who are the lawless and disobedient? Because that's what the Bible says the law is for. And what does the law do to the lawless and disobedient? So if the law is given to them and for them, what does it do to them? Now, the lawless and disobedient are all those who are not in Christ or have been forgiven or have been forgiven, uh, the, have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus of their sin. So if you're not a believer today, you're not a Christian today, you're not in Christ today, you are a part of that group, the, the lawless and disobedient. Now, not all today presently in this room are in this category, but everyone in this room at some point was in this category. Romans 3 says, for it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have sinned and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, brothers and sisters today, if you've been saved, praise God. If your sins have been forgiven through the cross of Jesus, glory to God. But just understand, we all began in this category of the unjust, of the unrighteous. The purpose and work of the law in the lives of the lawless is to bring condemnation onto your sin. Paul's list that he gives here in this passage is not exhaustive, but he does provide some examples of lawlessness. The lawless and disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, those who dishonor their parents, murderers, the sexual immoral, homosexuals, liars, false teachers. And then he says, and everything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. Friends, the law brings condemnation on these things and everything else that is contrary to solid doctrine. Now, the, the, the context in which you and I live right now, the world is passionately attempting to deny and silence the testimony of the law. The most offensive thing in our present culture you can do is to make a judgment over someone else's behavior. You can do some vile things today and nobody's going to say anything to you, but you want to be offensive, you want to be canceled, dare to make a judgment about someone else's behavior. Tremendous pressure is exerted to silence anything and anyone who would dare speak a word of judgment. However, all the culture pressure that they are bringing today, for all the effort that the world is doing to silence and to quell the testimony of condemnation, the world cannot silence the testimony of the law. You, you may have been accused, if you've been around someone today and spoken words of judgment or even just live righteously near them, you may have been accused of being judgmental by someone living in sin. And the honest truth is, because of our own understanding of grace and our own understanding of, of letting God be the one who judges the heart of men and women, when someone accuses you of being judgmental to, of them, if you're a Christian, there's a natural sort of recoiling from that. You've probably experienced that. You don't want to be judgmental. You don't want to be harsh. And you add that just to the cultural pressure. There's this tremendous just weight toward pushing you away from even being close to being judgmental. Now, you certainly should not find any pleasure in judgment. You certainly should, you certainly should respond mercifully to those who are struggling with sin. But brothers and sisters, you must be very careful and not to put any confidence in your, in your righteousness. However, listen, if you are interacting with someone living in sin, they will often accuse you of being judgmental, not because you were judging them, but because of the testimony of the law in their life, bringing condemnation upon them. Recognizing this, and reckon, recognize this as the goodness of the law working in their heart to condemn their sin. Now, you need to speak truth to brothers and sisters. And when I was preaching from 2 Corinthians, I made a big deal of the requirement, the expectation that we confront sin in the life of, brothers, of, of each other within the context of the church. But listen to me carefully. 
even if the entire church were to be silent, the law of God stands. And it works in the life and the hearts of the unjust to expose their sin and to condemn their sin. And for all the effort of the world, they cannot escape that reality. At another church, I was once had a church member tell me that I needed to lighten up on preaching on sin. <laughs> he told me that there had been some people that were friends of his who had been attending and he knew about them because he was good friends with them that they were living in sin. And he said, you know, if you, if you continue to preach this way, it offends them. It makes them uncomfortable and they're not going to come back to the church. Now, I hope that you're, you're thinking right now, oh, Pastor, I know you. You just bowed up on that brother and told him you were going to preach no matter what uh, the truth of God. But I, I do want to admit to you that just in my flesh, I want to draw as many people as I can to church. In my flesh, I don't like the thought of being offensive to anybody. And so as this friend of mine was saying, you need to lighten up because you're offending sinners and they're not going to come back to church, there was a part of me that understood the impulse of why he was making that case to me. But, but ultimately, I came back to this brother and I said, here's the thing. If you're living in sin, the most uncomfortable place you can be is in a church that is faithfully preaching the gospel. Preach any passage of Scripture faithfully, and the Word of God, the law of God working in the heart of the unjust is going to convict. It's going to condemn, and we should not work against the purpose of the law in the life of the unbelievers. The law is for the lawless working to convict them and to convict them of sin. Brothers and sisters, don't deny that. That is the purpose of the law. Declare the holiness of God. Condemn us in our sin. And thirdly, lead us to salvation. The good news of the gospel, oh, the good news of the gospel is that there is more than just condemnation. The law exposes sin and points you to your need for salvation. Today, one of the most celebrated words in academia, politics, and, and entertainment is the word affirmation. To be affirming is to affirm and to celebrate what the law of God condemns, particularly in the areas of sexual sin. So someone says to you, we're an affirming church, we're an affirming school, we're an affirming whatever, you need to run. Because what they're saying to you is, we are celebrating and affirming things that are contrary to the law of God. In our current cultural context, this is presented as kind and good, but it is in fact unkind and destructive. When someone is in danger, it is not kind to refuse to warn them. When someone is close to destruction, it is immoral not to call them to safety. The kindness and goodness of God are demonstrated in the condemnation of the law. Now, that may seem counterintuitive for you. The kindness, the goodness of God are expressed, are experienced through the condemnation of the law. How can that be? But the kindness and the goodness of God are demonstrated in the condemnation of the law so that, th so that those who are experiencing its condemnation might believe in faith and be rescued from the wrath that is over their sin. 
Paul will declare to Timothy, God desires that all men be saved. His desire is not that you receive his wrath. So he gives us the law that we might be, we see the holiness of God, we might be condemned in our sin, and we might be led to the hope and the gift of salvation. Galatians chapter 3, but the scripture imprisoned everything under the law, under, under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now therefore faith came and we held, and we were held we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith, the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. The law declaring the holiness of God, convicting of us of our sin, leading us to faith in Jesus Christ. The law is good if used lawfully. One last thing, the glory, the gospel of glory. I, I want to end this morning with just a word about the hope of the gospel. So in verse 5, Paul says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He concludes that thought he began in verse 5 in verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted the gospel of glory the gospel of glory first and foremost is that we have salvation through faith alone Paul's charge from God is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. The gospel begins with the hope of salvation through faith. Writing to the Romans in verse 10, for the heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified. No longer the unjust, but become justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Brothers and sisters, salvation does not come through keeping the law. The law condemns you in your sin, but salvation doesn't come through keeping the law. Salvation doesn't come through attaining some secret knowledge. Part of the false teaching that, that Timothy is dealing with is are, are those in the church that were taking the law and then adding to it this, this sense that there was some secret knowledge that you got that gave you some special spiritual ability and all of that's being rejected. That's not how you come to salvation. Salvation doesn't come through myths or the imaginations of men. Salvation comes from believing in faith that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. That's it. That is it. Salvation through faith. Oh, the glory of the gospel. And through saving faith comes the forgiveness of sins. Under the law, forgiveness of sins was through the offering of continual sacrifices for sin. In the days of the temple, the place where these sin sacrifices were made was a place that was in continual use. If you lived near the temple, you likely would have seen that smoke rising all the time, and it would have been a continual forever testimony that as soon as you left the place of sacrificing for your sins, you knew you were going to soon need to return continually making offerings because you were continually sinning and falling short of the glory of God. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, sin is forgiven once and for all through his death, 
burial, and resurrection. He is the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. That's why in Romans 3 it says, but now the righteousness of God has been made, been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And through the sin sacrifice of Jesus, Christians are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. That's why Paul says the law is not for the righteous. The righteous are not saved through keeping the law. The righteous are saved through the blood of Jesus. The law is to condemn the sinners, but grace is for those who are saved. Romans 6 says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is why Paul says in verse 9 that the law is not for the just. The hope of salvation for brothers and sisters in Christ is not from law-keeping. The hope for believers is from and through the blood of Jesus alone because we have forgiveness of our sins through Jesus. Salvation through faith, forgiveness of sins, and holiness before God. Do you remember the very first point of purpose of the law was to demonstrate God's holiness. And if we recognize God's holiness, we also recognize that we are not holy. The law testified to to sinful man's separation from God. But the gospel of the glory of the blessed God makes a way for the forgiveness of sins and for you and me to be in the presence of God. Not because God has ignored our sin but because our sin has been perfectly atoned for by Jesus. In salvation, you are made holy, acceptable in the sight of God, welcomed up on the mountain, welcomed into the presence of the glory of God. The law is not put aside. It is fulfilled in Jesus. Romans 3 says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And then Paul answers that question, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law because Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus atones for your sin. He pays the sin debt for your sin. He takes on your sin and guilt and imputes unto you his righteousness. Only through Jesus is the condemnation of the law removed. Oh, you knew I was getting to this passage. Writing in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that connection? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. What is, who is the law for? The law is not for the just, it's for the unjust. Romans 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Through the gospel, the redeemed have a new relationship with the law. The law is for the unjust, those who, to condemn them of their sin, but for those who are in Jesus, you and I have a new relationship to the law. Christians do not refrain from law-breaking for fear of condemnation. Romans 8 says there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christians refrain from law-breaking because God has transformed your heart to love the things God loves and to hate the things God hates. One of the testimonies that separates those in our 
cultural context between those who are culturally Christian but not saved and those who are truly in Christ is law-keeping not for a sense of salvation through the law, but it's a testimony to a heart being transformed by God. If God is your father, you will not love the things of Satan. And if you love the things of Satan, you, you are not a child of the living God. Christians have a new relationship with the law. We love the law not because it saves us. It, we love it because it testifies to the holiness of God. And we, the law we keep, we keep it's a testimony to the holiness of God. Our, our desire for holiness is a desire to please the one who saved us. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God draws the redeemed to live in holiness because God has already made us holy. Over the years, our children have come up through various sports. We have often said to them, just be coachable. Just be coachable. There are two opposing truths impacting every student and every athlete learning to play a sport or an academic learning new material. The first truth is that you naturally desire the easiest professor in school. As an athlete, you desire the coach that demands the least effort. When I was going through school, I investigated the professors. I didn't want the one who assigned, assigned extra work. I wanted the one who assigned, assigned the least amount of work. I didn't want the professor who graded hard. I wanted the professor who graded on an easy scale. Because every student, every athlete desires the easiest path, the least intensity, the, 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 the most comfortable way to move forward. But there's an opposing truth as well at play. The other truth is that once you have accomplished Whatever it is, academically or athletically, your goals. Once you have accomplished those goals, and particularly if you become rather accomplished in those goals, the teacher you most appreciate and the coach you most honor are the ones who demanded the most and held you to the highest standards. You don't celebrate the easy teachers, you celebrate the hard teachers. You don't honor the easy coaches you honor the ones who demanded your very best. A good teacher does not accommodate your ignorance but demands you study and learn the curriculum. A good coach does not allow you to relax or coast but pushes you to develop and grow in your ability and your strength and your skill. Flowing from his deep love for you, God gave the law that you might know his holiness and your sin and be drawn to salvation. It is neither kind nor good nor merciful to see your sin and to accommodate and to affirm you in it. No, friends, there is love and compassion in exposing your sin, in condemning your sin, that you might be drawn to the glorious gospel of God. Receive the goodness of the law. Declare the goodness of the law and rejoice in the goodness of salvation that through Jesus we're no longer under the law but under grace.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.